0: Direct from Cape Gun Works in Hyannis, you're listening to Rapid Fire Radio with your host, Toby Leary. I'm Toby
1: Leary from Cape Gunworks. I'm passionate about all things Second Amendment. While I love to shoot... Going hot. There is so much more to guns than just pulling the trigger. A free and armed society is a responsible and self-reliant one. Join us to talk all things guns, freedom, and self defense. It isn't just about being armed, it's about being responsibly armed. So load and make ready. This is Rapid Fire. Welcome everybody to Rapid Fire. I'm your host Toby Leary, your 2 a talk radio show that is sponsored by Vortex Optics and the USCCA. Welcome everyone to another episode, exciting episode. We've got quite the show for you today. A lot to talk about. Um, As usual, that's never something that we're lost on, Um, and. Just remember to go and like, subscribe, share, comment, and spread the word far and wide to all your friends, neighbors, enemies, family, and associates about rapid fire so that we can be heard out there because you know it's it's very unfortunate what's happening in gun world on big tech platforms so for that reason, I need your help uh, so <laughs> Um, I would appreciate you guys liking and subscribing, go to at rapid fire or at rapid excuse me, or at Cape Gunworks, and make sure you're a part of all of our good firearms content. So with that being said, um, there's never a dull moment. Like I said, in, in gun world, uh, we have all kinds of crazy stuff going on out there. we got a new creation of a looks like a cabinet level position uh, to talk about gun control as far as, yeah, um, you know, from the federal government side, which is not cool. Oh, my. Yeah. Tell me about it. And we have the Biden administration in this weird predicament because they want to restrict your right to keep and bear arms. At all and any cost, all the while, Hunter Biden just got charged federally with three different gun violations, two of which involve lying to the on a federal form the forty four seventy three and the other one which um, is an interesting one because if Well, let me back up. The lawyers for Hunter Biden say that this will be dismissed before trial. So that tips their hand a little bit on what they're gonna use as their defense. So the funny, the irony is he is being charged with gun violations while his father is trying to implement greater gun control restrictions against people like him, but worse than that, against people like you and me, who are under current law and current rule and current um policy, not prohibited people because we are not addicted to crack cocaine so the the third charge is basically. He was a prohibited person because he is addicted to an illegal substance such as crack cocaine. And the lawyers are saying it'll be dismissed. Hmm. That's interesting because if it's dismissed before trial, then obviously they're using some sort of constitutional uh, reasoning for that. And this is brilliant on his lawyer's part, by the way, but even more than brilliant by his lawyers, is it might be the case that gun owners are looking for to end certain types of gun control. What the heck do you mean by that, Toby? Well, how ironic would it be if... Hunter Biden, in his case, sets legal precedents that would counteract decades of settled law or settled precedent or settled rules that have been enforced upon many other people. I spoke on this show a few months ago about the woman, I believe it was from New York, uh, New York City, who was found to be an unlawful, uh, prohibited person. And she was sentenced to a year and a day in jail because she lied on the federal 4473 form. So here's the, you know, obviously she, I think she was a drug addict and admitted to be, and so got sentenced accordingly. I'm sure she just had like a state appointed lawyer, which was telling her to take a plea deal. We all know that's not going to happen in the case of Hunter Biden. He's going to have the top tier, top lawyers that money can buy. Um, he's he's not going to be, you know, relying on public defenders, let's put it that way. and. So under the Bruin mandate, it, it talks about text, history, and tradition as of our country's ratification in 1791, or our, our constitution's ratification in 1791. And it says that you can no longer use the tears of scrutiny or the um, step Approach or the public interest balancing approach, which was long relied upon by district and appellate courts throughout the country. So because this case, the NYSERPA v. Bruin, went all the way to the Supreme Court, it ended up challenging decades' worth of public uh, or interest balancing or tiers of scrutiny type of approaches to the law, um, which upheld gun control historically for decades. Then we had uh, the Heller in 2008, which changed all that. And um, that the problem with the Heller decision was the, some of the language left the door open for gun control Number one and number two didn't give a clear mandate to lower courts on how to interpret gun control law, Um, so it was still the wild, wild west until the Bruin case came to light in was and was ruled on in June of 2022. So it's going to be cool and interesting to see the Biden attorneys use the Bruin mandate for. His legal defense and Mark Smith from the Four Boxes Diner did a great video last week on breaking down um, how if the third charge is ruled unconstitutional, meaning there's no text history or tradition of revoking people or making them prohibited persons on the fact that they are a substance abuser, then the first two are kind of moot so you can't accuse him of lying on the form about being an a uh, said abuser of illegal substances if it's unconstitutional to restrict him on that so that's a interesting wait and see and how ironic that one of the better cases that are going to be going before the court system uh, even if it's dismissed on said grounds, will will set some sort of precedent for um, other legal challenges to cite that that precedent. Um, and it's the gun grabber in chief's own son. So, boy, this creates an interesting political environment, if you ask me. It, it creates this uh, <laughs> blivid. For the for the uh, Biden administration. so what is oblivion? you ask? Well, we all know the the word picture of having ten pounds of steaming hot you know what in a five pound paper bag. If you hold on to it, you get it all over you and if you drop it, you get it all over you. So either way, you come away smelling pretty bad so that's the the news around you know hunter biden as far as being charged federally also on a side note joe biden is i guess it's weighing heavily upon joe biden about the um the fact that this could take years and years and years to settle and he actually said that he will probably be dead before his son's legal woes are adjudicated, so that's probably true. Um, but I also found it interesting, and I'm not trying to go down the politics road here. I I gave a speech on Saturday, Sunday, excuse me, at the Norfolk County Republican Commission's uh, 2A Assembly in um, Newton, Massachusetts, with a bunch of other. 2A defenders, Jim Wallace and Carrie Ann O'Claire and Charlie Cook and um, a couple people that I had never met. Mike Harris was there as well. But the point I'm trying to make is, I said in that speech that I long for the day when the 2A is not a political football to be tossed around and bantered about. Like take for instance, the Fifth Amendment. You know, there might be a couple of people on the extremes that would like to see the Fifth Amendment go away, but for the most part, the Democrats, the Republicans, the independents, libertarians, you know, whoever you are, you're pretty happy with the fact that you have a right to remain silent and to make sure that you don't incriminate yourself and that there's due process before any of your stuff is taken away. That's the Fifth Amendment, right? There's not too many people that make uh, RNC or DNC speeches around wanting to repeal the Fifth Amendment, correct? That's kind of a settled, like universal, non political amendment. There's others, but that one is not very controversial. I long for the day when guns go back to being in that category. Right now, it's far from that there's definitely hostility on the side of the democratic party towards you know gun control towards the second amendment we have people like gavin newsom that proposed the 28th amendment which would severely restrict your second amendment rights which would basically make them a privilege instead of a right we have joe biden just announced the Office of Gun Violence Prevention on Friday after a coordinated effort with Mike Bloomberg, his gun control group, uh, and Every Town for Gun Safety. Um, so, th- this is something that the Democratic Party has made a massive plank in their election or campaign or um, campaign promises, if you will, is to severely restrict, revoke, repeal, or encumber your constitutionally protected right to keep and bear arms. Let's get into this. Uh, a. W. Hawkins wrote an article on Breitbart. Um, According to The Washington Post, a new office will report up through Stephanie Feldman, the White House staff, secretary and longtime Biden policy aide who has worked on the firearms issue for years. Coordination in the office is expected to become between the White House, the Community Justice Action Fund and every town for gun safety. So, all right, let me stop you right there, Toby, because I have a problem with an executive level office of gun violence prevention coordinating with a non-profit, period. I think that's a conflict of interest. I think that is a serious, serious conflict of interest. I think that it would be akin to having a Republican administration Say, you know, we are going to now have a cabinet level position, and it is going to be um, in opposition to abortion rights, and we're gonna nominate um, you know the the Catholic uh, sisters or whoever the heck the uh, or let's put it this way, the the right to life campaign, March for March for our lives campaign as the liaison and the uh, the community liaison for the for this new right to life anti-abortion cabinet level position so i feel joe biden has um violated his constitutional oath of office just by proposing such a office but we'll get We'll get into this on the other side there's you know plenty to unpack there uh we'll t- we'll talk about it um so yeah don't forget to go over to capegunworks.com and check out all of the good deals we have online i'd love to see uh you guys use the website you can use it to search the in stock gun guns and ammo and whatnot and also sign up for a class or become a member, buy a gift card for someone. We got the holiday season right on our tail. I know everyone's excited about that. (laughs) So we will be right back. Don't go away. I'm Toby Lear. Federal ammunition is 100. This is where the American ingenuity met a trailblazing spirit. Hard work united with patriotism and technology blended with new ideas. That's Federal Ammunition. Right here in Anoka, Minnesota, born in 1922, made in America, and proud to be the best. Federal Ammunition, a century of innovation, and we're only getting started. Federal delivers a knockout punch with the leading defensive ammo on the market. Federal punch hollow points are accurate and reliable in all defensive situations. When you need reliability designed to provide a balanced mix of effective penetration, and expansion, you need punch defensive ammunition from Federal, the leader in nickel-plated brass ammo with a sealed primer to deliver reliable feeding and ignition. Get Federal Punch defensive hollow-point ammunition here at Cape Gunworks. Welcome back to Rapid Fire, your weekly show all things guns, freedom, Second Amendment, and self-defense. I'm your host, Toby Leary. And... Don't forget to check out our poll and vote in our poll. You can go over to Rapid Fire Radio on Twitter, all one word, or the platform formerly known as Twitter, a.k.a. X. Um, and today, this week's poll question is, what poses the most significant threat to the Second Amendment? Executive action, media narrative, legal challenges, or legislative action? Uh, so you can go ahead and go over to Rapid Fire Radio, all one word, on Twitter and vote in that poll. We'll also get that poll up on truth. And uh, we should be able to once a, someday get that back on our website at rapidfireradio.us. But um, you can check out other great stuff at rapidfireradio.us. All right, let's get back to this article. Um, sorry for the deviation there, uh, but I still think there's a serious, serious... Um, conflict of interest here. Uh, Shannon Watts, a Mike Bloomberg affiliate who founded Moms Demand Action, praised the creation of the Office of Gun Violence Prevention, saying, if this announcement is, in fact, the creation of a single point of leadership on gun violence in the administration, it is a very big deal for the movement. She added, a governmental focal point dedicated to creating a framework for overseeing national policy research and resources would be more than symbolic. It would be a significant turning point for the movement. I would agree with you there, Shannon. On August 31, 2023, Breitbart News reported that Biden's ATF was using executive rule to expand background checks to the point of nearly being universal. In a press release that accompanied the announcement of the proposed rule, attorney Merrick Garland said the bipartisan Safer Communities Act was passed by Congress to reduce gun violence, including by expanding the background checks that keep guns out of the hands of criminals. This proposed rule implements Congress's mandate to expand the definition of who must obtain a license and conduct a background check before selling firearms. Wait a minute, what did he just say? Congress's mandate to expand the definition of who must obtain a license and conduct background checks before selling firearms. That is very significant. I'll I'll get to that in a second. The ATF's rule will redefine language so that there is not simply a category of Americans buying and selling guns from one to another, as they have done since 1791, and a category of federal firearms license holders selling guns at retail. Rather, every seller will have to prove that he is not trying to make a profit or he will be required to ensure the purchaser undergoes a background check before taking possession of the firearm. Unbelievable. So what is the way the federal government can close the gun show loophole? What is that gun show loophole, you might ask? It sounds scary. It sounds dangerous. It sounds like freedom is occurring right under our noses, and nobody is there to watch. Nobody is there to, to listen. All right, let's go to a call. Hello, this is Rapid Fire. You're on the line with Toby Leary. How are you? Are you there? I guess not. Try back. Okay, by the way, the phone number to the show is 508-444-2120. It's the rapid fire line, 508-444-2120. I will go to the phones if you call, so um, don't think I won't. Just throwing that out there. Uh, So anyway, what I was saying is because of the bipartisan Safer Communities Act that was passed, and everybody thought, oh, this is just about Red flag laws, they, they sound like a good thing. They sound like a good idea. Let's let's pass some red flag laws. All we're going to do is fund red flag laws and all, this, all those backward states that don't have them. Oh, you mean the uh, 31 states that don't have them? I know there's 19 progressive states that love to be able to take away your right to keep and bear arms without due process, simply on the word of another human being whether it be a police officer, a teacher, a doctor, a nurse, a family member, a neighbor, I digress. The other 31 states haven't got their act together yet. They're still living in this free society and self-reliance and responsible people doing what they see fit. But the other 19 states, we already have red flag laws. They've already proven to be ineffective. They already proven to not work. Although they do one thing very well, which makes every town and Bloomberg and Moms Demand and David Hogue very happy. And that is they take guns away from somebody virtually without due process. And that's a problem because of the Constitution. Um, we had, I was on the Grace Curley show yesterday briefly because I was broadcasting from. The uh, Matt Light celebrity shootout in at Addyville East Farm in Rhode Island, and it was a tough cell phone connection, so I didn't last long. But one of the things I was talking about uh, was this exact thing: how you know gun control people would really like to emphasize control and take guns away without due process by laying the blame at the people who aren't responsible's feet, because you and I choose to protect ourselves with a firearm, then therefore we need more control. We need government to know if we make a firearm in our basement. We need government to know if we're gonna sell that gun to our friend or neighbor. We need government to know um, how many guns we have, what, what guns we have, what they're capable of doing. We need serialization of those guns. We need to make sure that, uh, you know, depending on what state you live in, how many guns you're allowed to buy a month, whether there's a background or, or a waiting period before you can pick up your gun, this quote unquote cooling off period. And here's the deal. About 300 people die a year by the hand of rifles, period. Any and all rifles combined including the black scary guns, including the quote-unquote assault weapons, including bolt action, single action, pump action, uh, single shot, or semi-auto. And because of those 300 people that die a year as a result of that, we want to take away the rights of 350 million Americans. That's the way it works. That's exactly the way it works um i listened on the and we will get to your comments i promise i am not avoiding the chat on purpose um i listened when i was driving down to addyville east yesterday um to and from i listened to the first three of the six-part series that malcolm gladwell is doing on gun control or guns in general uh he has a podcast called Revisionist history. And the first two were pretty Canadian anti gun. Um, He had never fired a gun, didn't know anyone who had, you know, roles in very liberal elite circles. Um, And by the way, I love his books, I think they're great. Um, And he goes on to painfully point out, I'm afraid, in the second one, especially, uh, or errantly point out that. The whole Bruin decision was hinged upon the Knight's case, which was a pre-United States English law case dating back to the 14th century. Um, I don't agree with that premise. I do agree that it had something to do with it, but I don't believe the entire Bruin decision hinged on that. However, um, the third episode, he starts to look at the other side. The gun control uh, side of things from a pro gun point of view, and he admits um, there's some things here that I don't want to know. And he goes to a um, a professor who is his last name is Wallace, ironically, I think at uh, University of South Carolina, if I'm not mistaken, um, who's an NRA member and you know writer and professor and whatnot. And he takes him to the range. They shoot an AR-15 and they start talking about it. And he talks about the white paper that a guy named Sugarman wrote from, I think it was uh, Guns Inc., uh, one of those gun control groups um, that wrote a white paper basically saying, guys, we got to stop using gun control. We need to stop using that language and shift the narrative And this is when things shifted from basically gun control to assault weapons bans. And so he said, we can prey on the ignorance. This is in the white paper. We can prey on the ignorance of people who don't understand that a military rifle and a civilian version of it are vastly different, but they don't know that. So if we can harp on the people's ignorance, we can get traction in our movement. And he was 100% right. Uh, and Malcolm Gladwell has this come to Jesus moment at the end of this where he's so upset that they have used lies in their narrative because we, we've gone over that nuance a lot. When I had Bill Whittle on the show, we were talking about uh, you know assault weapons. And he said, basically, stop it right there. Time out, guys. Stop debating the nuance of guns. This comes down to self-defense. Do you have a right to defend yourself against people who wish you evil and harm? And that's exactly the way it is. Um, so, so, you know, basically, um, he he had this realization that both sides sometimes stretch the statistics. But the Sugarman paper really was a jump the shark moment where they're preying on people's ignorance of guns and using synonymous terms to continue that evil narrative, if you will. And uh yeah, it was pretty eye-opening. So I'm gonna try and get Malcolm Gladwell on rapid fire. What do you think? If you know him, give him a call, tell him Toby Leary's looking for him. But uh <laughs> would uh would love to have him on at some point. So anyway, um Check out all the content over at uh, tapegunworks.com and uh, sign up and like and subscribe at all of our social media. Uh, I'm Toby Leary, we'll be right back after this. You're listening to Rapid Fire. Carrying a firearm for personal protection has never been more popular than it is today. USCCA can help fortify your home, sharpen your awareness and develop your defensive plan Go to uscca.co forward slash rapidfire to sign up. Your family's safety and security is your responsibility. Go to uscca.co forward slash rapidfire to sign up for a USCCA membership and get special training, legal advice, and legal protection you and your family need. Welcome, everyone. It's Toby from Rapid Fire Radio, and it's time for another Rapid Fire Gun of the Week. Last week's video was the cool Rossi 357 Magnum lever action gun, but it was modernized, so it wasn't the true cowboy gun. It was brought into the 21st century and made very tactical looking. This week, we're bringing it back to the old west. This is a gun that has been very hard to get and keep in stock. The Ruger Vaquero, and this one is in 357 Magnum, Which is super cool because it's cheaper to shoot if you put 38 special in it than like 45 long Colt or 44 mag it's got the four and five ace barrel but wait there's more if you're going to get one of these in true old west tradition you should get two we have a pair that's right we got a pair of the ruger baccaro four and five ace 357 magnum super cool and it can go along with the rossi Weber action in 357 Magnum. See what I did there? Anyway, Rapid Fire Gun of the Week is all about guns I think are cool, so there you have it. <laughs> Come check it out at Cape Gunworks, or go to Rapid Fire Radio, scroll down to Gun of the Week, click on it and use G-O-W at checkout for a very special savings on your Ruger Vaccaro or your pair of Ruger Vaccaros. Get them while while they're hot. I'm Toby Leary, and I'll see you on Rapid Fire. Thanks so much. Vortex offers the very best optics specifically made for shooters with rugged construction designed for extreme environments. Vortex Optics build quality ensures accurate, reliable, and repeatable performance every time you squeeze the trigger. Add fully multi-coated lenses and nitrogen purging, and you have a quality optic with an extremely reasonable price tag. That is the Vortex difference. Coming to Cape Gunworks to see the full line of Vortex Optics today. And welcome back to Rapid Fire. I'm your host, Toby Leary. Love talking with you each and every week. All things guns, freedom, Second Amendment, and self-defense. Um, check out those Gun of the Week guns, the Ruger Vaccaro. It's like uh, having Yosemite Sam on your, uh, on your hip. <laughs> uh, Entire nation, but anyway, uh, yeah. Welcome back to Rapid Fire. Uh, so, I'm gonna get to the chat in just one sec. I promise. Um, I just want to cross reference the uh, that news of the gun violence prevention office. So, uh, this is a story by uh, Dave Workman from ammoland.com and it says uh, anti-gun democrat Joe president joe biden will reportedly announce this friday the creation of what fox news is calling the first ever federal office of gun violence prevention ironically on the same day the 2023 gun rights policy conference opens in phoenix arizona uh, i have a lot of friends sp- speaking at that so uh that's pretty cool i wish i was going but um I got a campaign to run, (laughs) so I'll be staying put. The Hill reports that the new White House office will have the formal name Office of Gun Violence Prevention. We have yet to see whether it actually prevents so-called gun violence or merely pushes more restrictive gun control schemes. I think that's exactly what this is going to do. And, you know, before I was on the show today, I was doing some show prep and I was over at the CDC. And I was looking at how the staggering amount of people that die in automobiles a year, the staggering amount of people that die accidental deaths, the staggering amount of people that die by drowning. And how come the federal government hasn't created the, you know, drowning prevention office, the office of accidental death? Or you know what? Ironically. And I know I use that word a lot. I should probably get a new adjective. But um, the CDC buries in all of its statistics malpractice. You got to really dig for how many people die a year due to mal- medical malpractice. It is staggering. It's like 250,000 people a year die at the hand of medical malpractice. And you can't find that. All they love to say is the leading cause of death in children is guns. No, it's not. It's not. I promise you that. And when you look at the leading cause, the causes of death in children in cars, the statistics go up to like 15 or 16. But when it talks about guns it goes all the way up to 19 because all of a sudden 19 year olds are kids and 18 year olds are kids and these are the ones running around chicago and dorchester and um, mattapan and on mass and cass in boston and south boston i read an article the other day of a like a 14 year old kid getting into a car stopped with a caltech sub 2k with a 30 round mag and you know it's like i bet you 20 bucks he wasn't raised in a two-parent household that taught him gun safety and that taught him how to be safe and responsible with a firearm i promise you he wasn't he probably had never taken his fid class yes you can do that at 14 he probably hasn't been through hunter safety uh, but he's getting into a car in the city with a gun and a band thirty-round mag, and he's fourteen. How did he get that gun? Unbelievable. Um. Sorry, I, I, I thank you for allowing me that digression here. Uh, co-sponsored by the Second Amendment Foundation and the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms, the thirty-eighth annual GRPC. Convene at the Marriott Phoenix Airport Hotel, and this year' year's theme is "Road to Liberty." But Second Amendment advocates ad, activists see Biden wanting to travel down a different road, one headed into a mire of gun bans, so-called uh, expanded background checks, licensing, and training mandates, and other machinations that would ultimately lead to gutting the Second Amendment and turning the right to keep and bear arms into a government-regulated privilege. Is it not already, depending on what state you live in? As noted by Politico, the new office will present an opportunity for the president to point to his action on gun safety at a time when Congress is unlikely to pass additional legislation, potentially increasing enthusiasm among key voting blocs, including young people. So I didn't really complete the thought. I'm all over the road today. But um, earlier, when we were talking about this bipartisan Safer Communities Act, the wording in there that talks about um, the expanded background check. So basically, they they want to crack down on gun dealers who are selling guns for profit, but yet aren't going through the requisite background check, which is interesting because they are basically saying now that if you sell a gun for a profit like a dollar profit then you are a gun dealer and you have to conduct a background check but wait you can't conduct a background check because you're not a gun dealer so you don't have access to the federal nics section so that means you got to go to a gun store and do a background check um that is their way of closing the private transfer loophole that gun Show loophole that they love to tout and love to talk about. So, this article on uh, Bearing Arms says, "Translation: It's a campaign gimmick as well as an ominous, uh, omnious indication of a ramped-up war on gun rights." And that's all this is. That's exactly what the you know the people who signed off on that bipartisan Safer Communities Act, thinking they were just doing red flag laws, have really stepped in it big time. The Biden administration, obviously, not, he's not pulling the levers and switches, in my opinion, but they are outclassing the, the Republicans just about at every turn. Whether it be J Six, whether it be um, you know with Hunter dealing with Hunter Biden, whether it be with uh, dealing with all of the uh, the Ukraine issues, the money. Laundering schemes by the Biden administration and everything else. And I would say this is another outmaneuvering of those who claim to be proponents of the Second Amendment or who claim to be staunch advocates or defenders of your Second Amendment rights. But they liked the thought of signing on to something that said bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Well, guess what? They're going to use that. To shut down or to monitor or track or prohibit person to person transfers. So, if you want to give your son a, a gun for Christmas, eh, sorry about that. You can't do that. You're going to have to, yeah, that's right. You're going to have to go to a gun store and go through the background check process and pay a fee to the federal government and to everybody else for the person that you already know is not a prohibited person and is a gun owner and is a responsible person. And right now, under the law, you can currently give give them a gun or tr- sell them a gun. Think about all the people who bought guns over the years as an investment. They, you know probably wanted to diversify their portfolio, real estate, gold, silver, stocks, bonds, and guns. I call them semi-precious metals, right? So guns appreciate, good guns appreciate over time. It's a thing. And I know lots of people that get into collecting guns for the financial gain that they will get someday when they sell them. Or they see a gun for a good deal at a gun show They buy it, they shoot it for a while, and then after a while, go, you know, I don't really like this. And they want to sell it at market value and they make a hundred bucks or fifty bucks in the process. That would be prohibited now under the new definition uh, of this Safer uh, Communities Act that was signed, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. But Don't let the facts get in the way of a good narrative because emotion is what wins the day on the evening news. Uh, That's why you'll see not all mass shootings get reported, only the ones that fit the narrative. That's why defensive gun uses never get reported or hardly ever, unless there's such a high-profile case that they have to be because they're picked up on uh, alternative media uh, media situations, so that is the state of the union as it relates to firearms. Don't be transparent. Don't be. Don't let the talking points be the truth. Let it be emotion. Let it be cloaked in darkness. Let it be cloaked in fear. And I get, I get it that our side does that too, you know. When you get the magazine in the mail and it says, you know, the UN is coming for your guns, donate today. You're like, whoa, what? What did I just read? And I, I agree. I don't think that's actually going to happen. I don't think the UN is going to get that. My guns. I don't think. I don't think that's going to happen. I think they have a a pretty big standing army in America, if they think they're going to get our guns, Uh, you know, start rounding up and knocking and knocking door to door and stacking up and trying. So anyway, all right, let's get to some of your questions. Uh, Well, actually, when we come back from the break, we will do that, I promise. Um, I don't mean to take so much time up as I always do. Uh, Sometimes I just ramble the way it goes but uh we will be right back quick break vortex offers the very best optics specifically made for shooters with rugged construction designed for extreme environments vortex optics build quality ensures accurate reliable and repeatable performance every time you squeeze the trigger Add fully multi-coated lenses and nitrogen purging, and you have a quality optic with an extremely reasonable price tag. That is the Vortex Difference. Come into Cape Gunworks to see the full line of Vortex optics today. Welcome back to Rapid Fire, your weekly show all things guns, freedoms, Second Amendment, and self-defense. Don't forget to vote in our poll. What poses the most significant threat to the Second Amendment? Executive action. Media narrative, legal challenges, or legislative action. And you can go over to Rapid Fire Radio, all one word on our Twitter page and vote. And currently, the results are executive action is at 50% and legislative action is at 50%. No votes for legal challenges or media narrative. I think that legal challenges has a pretty significant chance of eating into some of our gun rights in this next. supreme court decision uh you know that could come up the rahimi case um i don't think so exactly i i hope they are able to put away the guy's horrible character and vote on the laws the way it should be but anyway um go vote in our poll all right let's get to the questions um ASD says, the show is called Rapid Fire, yet some gun clubs discourage their members from shooting too fast during rapid fire, making it look evil. Yeah, and that was one of the big sticky wickets from Malcolm Gladwell in that Revisionist History podcast, episode number three that I listened to, was Sugarman's um, white paper that he wrote on assault weapons said that, the military uses machine guns for suppressive fire and then tries to jump the shark and say, so assault weapons, the civilian version of military weapons, as they like to say, are, can be used for suppressive fire as well. So Malcolm Gladwell's like, uh, but if you pull the trigger and hold it down, only one bullet comes out. And this guy Wallace had a timer and he fired 30 rounds out of his magazine as fast as he possibly could. And I think he did it in seven seconds. And Malcolm Gladwell was like, wow, that was really fast. So how much faster or is it about the same as a machine gun? And he goes, no, it's nothing like a machine gun. Um, A machine gun would have been able to do 70 rounds or 60 rounds in that same amount of time. And he's like, what? And so that's what really started to tick him off about Sugarman's white paper. So um, here at Cape Gunworks, we say one shot per second, unless you can maintain all your shots on the target. I don't care how fast you shoot, as long as they're all hitting the paper. I don't want people who don't know how to shoot spraying all over the place. So from our standpoint, it's a don't break my stuff rule. Uh, But I want you to shoot as fast as you possibly can. And for the most part, we don't discourage people from doing it only if they can't keep the rounds contained upon the paper. So um, it has nothing to do with the neighbors, in our case, ASD. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, I was talking about that. KP's mentioning about Jared from Guns and Gadgets has a video about that Office of Gun Violence Reduction. I. I haven't seen Jared's video on that yet. Actually, I haven't seen anyone's video on that yet. Um, And all the gun grabbers are getting all excited about it. Um, Hey, all right. Upstomp says this is his first 2A related live stream. Huzzah! Thank you, bud. Well, I'm glad you're here. And uh, that's good good to hear. When they failed with handguns, they switched to scary-looking rifles. Exactly. That's exactly what they did. Um, Because the 70s and 80s were all about Saturday night specials. You got a barrel that is blue and cold. Ain't good for nothing. Put a man six feet in the hole. I'm not going to say, sorry. It's not my forte. Thanks to everybody. Uh, But yeah, that was the big push, was the Saturday night special. And if they were smart, They would have stayed on that route because handguns still kill more people than long guns, period. But they knew that so many people rely on handguns for defensive purposes, they weren't going to get anywhere. It even got voted down in Massachusetts, of all places. Um, The D.C. uh, District of Columbia did have a ban on handguns, and that's what prompted the whole Heller Supreme Court ruling. So there you have that. Um, g webs points out that more people probably die from leaving a sponge in you after surgery rather than guns, but they don't track it at all. Um, yeah, the medical malpractice is very difficult, difficult. Drowning is what percent of deaths in children? Ah, that's a good question, Mike. I would like to know that uh statistic it is a significant there's a I think there's three or eight hundred three to eight hundred people that drown a year and most of them are children I believe and yet they're not trying to get bathtubs out of houses they're not trying to get swimming pools out of houses they're not trying to ban you from swimming at the beach they're not trying to keep you from going on boats that seems like a very um it lacks integrity. If you're willing to ban an entire segment of society from owning guns because of the few hundred people a year that die from them, then, you know, and I'm talking specifically about rifles, then you ought to be able to be consistent in your argument. I would actually have a whole lot more respect for you if you did have that same level of integrity. In other words, not only did you start the office of gun violence, you know, prevention, but you started the office of car death prevention, and you started the office of drowning prevention, and you started the office of uh, medical malpractice prevention, and every single one of those have a liaison. To the advocacy group that wants to see that right taken away, then I could at least say, "Man, that person's intellectually honest. They just want us all to live in a padded room. Take away all sharp objects. Take away blunt striking implements. Take away deep water. Take away, um, you know, any type of medicine that could have a side effect." Take away, uh, you know, knives and whips and chains and dilly clubs. Uh, take away sharp scissors. Got to go back to those roundy type that with the green handles that you had in elementary school. And you'd sit in there and you'd eat your yogurt or your cottage cheese or your applesauce with a spork. Then I'd have more respect for you. But anyway, uh, for what it's worth, the Sugarman's article in 98, Assault Weapons and Accessories in America, here in the conclusion he writes, quote, below, anything that looks like a machine gun is assumed to be a machine gun. can only increase the chance of public support for restrictions. That's, ex- that's exactly what I was alluding to. And um, thank you for sharing that, uh, G-Webs. That's, that's excellent because I want to um, go back over to that. Article and and I'll I'll post more about it once I've fully read it. Um, drowning is what percent of deaths in children? Drowning deaths are the second leading cause of injury death among children, those aged zero to seventeen from 99 to 2019. Um, so, approximately a thousand kids die from drowning per year. Uh, for what it's worth, nearly 70,000 deaths from overdose involve opioids per year. Interesting. 40,000 from all guns, 30,000 of those are suicide. Um, I've gotten proficient at keeping fast rounds on the paper. It's enjoyable. That's good. Because um, all shooting is a balance of speed and precision. So if you're missing the paper, slow down your rate of fire. If you're making all your holes go through a really, really, tight group, shoot faster because you don't need a really, really, really tight group in order to defend yourself with a firearm. Uh, ASD points out that they don't hate boats or pools, etc. cetera. They hate guns. And that is exactly the obvious point. That is like what it comes down to. Um, what was really cool about the uh, second Malcolm Gladwell uh, edition in his six-part series about guns, and you got to kind of listen to it with a grain of salt because it's coming from a very left-leaning uh, liberal from Canada who believes no one should have guns. But and he paints things in a very uh, he paints things with a broad brush. But what the, one of the coolest things on the first and second episodes are the fact that you hear the oral arguments from the Supreme court chamber. Like I didn't know you could listen to that and get audio from it. So that was kind of cool. And he talks about, well, he plays the audio from the state attorney general's office. That's defending um, their gun licensing scheme. And he said the quiet part out loud when she was being, questioned by justice alito and said you know hey what about these hardworking people that are have to ride the subway at all hours of the night or morning and shouldn't they be able to defend themselves and she goes the thought of people being armed on the subway is terrifying so that was exactly what the whole point of the new york um Lawyer or the New York elected official or appointed uh, official, their sentiment is towards you being able to defend yourself against the bad guy. And that is the thought of you having a gun on the subway is terrifying, which is amazing to me that they won't look at the amount of defensive gun uses per year versus the amount of. undesirable gun uses or gun deaths per year Um, and see that the the amount of people that defend themselves with firearms a year is staggering in compared to how many people are harmed by them being used for evil purposes so but you know i again i just don't understand like when they stand in a coffee shop next to a police officer carrying a gun they're not terrified And police officers are more likely to commit a crime than gun owners. That's something a lot of people don't like to admit. But it's the truth. Statistically speaking, police officers are more inclined to commit crime than peaceful gun-owning population of the United States of America. All right. Um, How accurate is the state handgun roster? I was looking through it well in the market for a couple of rimfire pistols. And the list seemed to be very inconsistent model numbers, verse names, et cetera. It depends on brand, but I would say you got to kind of go by the list. That's the way it is. um, Unfortunately. Um, How was the event last weekend? It was wonderful. We had a great time. Uh, Obviously we were preaching to the choir. I would say there were some people there that there was a lot of people there that weren't gun owners. They fundamentally don't Oppose gun ownership, but they just aren't a gun owner. And so I think the opportunity to educate them was phenomenal. So, anyway, um, I appreciate the first hour's already in the bag, guys. And uh, I appreciate everyone tuning in, but you don't want to go away. We have attorney uh, William Smith uh, from Massachusetts here on the next hour. We've got a lot to talk about with him. Uh, It's going to be really good. Um, So you don't want to miss out and uh, you can keep the comments coming in the chat. And if you want to ask uh, attorney Smith some questions, you can always give us a call on the rapid fire line, 508-444-2120. It's 508-444-2120. And uh, we will be right back. I'm Toby Leary, and this is Rapid Fire. Carrying a firearm for personal protection has never been more popular than it is today. The USCCA can help fortify your home, sharpen your awareness, and develop your defensive plan. Go to uscca.co forward slash rapidfire to sign up. Your family's safety and security is your responsibility. Go to uscca.co forward slash rapidfire to sign up for a USCCA membership and get special training, legal advice, and legal protection you and your family need. Federal delivers a knockout punch with the leading defensive ammo on the market. Federal punch hollow points are accurate and reliable in all defensive situations. When you need reliability designed to provide a balanced mix of effective penetration and expansion, you need punch defensive ammunition from Federal, the leader in nickel-plated brass ammo with a sealed primer to deliver reliable feeding and ignition. Get Federal punch defensive hollow point ammunition here at Cape Gunmark. And welcome back to Rapid Fire, your weekly show all things guns, freedom, Second Amendment, and self-defense. I'm Toby Leary, your host. This is sponsored by Vortex Optics and the USCCA. Make sure you go over to Vortex Optics and check out their lineup, or you can go shop online at CapeGunWorks.com, and uh we'll have you there. So uh, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you consume social media at Cape Gunworks and at rapid fire radio, all one word. Uh, oh, um, yeah, wherever you get your social media. All right. I am happy to have with us today on the rapid fire it, attorney, William Smith. How are you today? Hopefully we can hear you.
2: Hi, Toby. It's great to see you.
1: Nice. Great to see you as well. Um, thanks so much for coming on and being willing to talk about uh, our all the state of Guns in Massachusetts, uh, our wonderful gun friendly state here. Um, but how's everything going with you? Uh, why don't, well, before we get going, why don't you tell everyone what it is you do? And obviously they know you're an attorney, but, uh, you're a Massachusetts attorney and go ahead and just tell everyone what it is you do for a living and, and, uh, what it's like being an attorney in Massachusetts around crazy gun laws.
2: Sure. I'd love to. Um, I do a lot of criminal defense, Toby, and I also do a lot of firearms licensing. So, uh, what that means is suspensions, denials, um, revocations, etc. And my firearms practice has, uh, really taken off since about 2020. I actually did very little of it historically in the many years <laughs> that I've practiced here in the birthplace of Liberty and, um, but I, um, I I just sort of, one thing led to another back in 2020, and here I am. And now I do a lot of it, and I love it. It's great. Um, so I do that. I argue those cases in court, you know, almost every day. And um, it's absolutely phenomenal work. Um, I would just say what I find, Toby, um I think, unfortunately, what has happened, you were talking earlier about sort of what are the causes of this, the the erosion, the withering of this right. And you said something relative to the legal system. And and you know what? uh, In my opinion, you were spot on. You really were. Because I think what is the problem in Massachusetts? I think it's two things. It's number one, we elect people who are dead set opposed to this right. I think it's a little bit of a mistake to say they're opposed to guns. They're opposed to this right. Mm-hmm. So they make the they make the laws accordingly. And um as a as a district court judge pointed out in Lowell pointed out recently in Massachusetts, this has never been really looked at as a right. Um and now, you know, that is changing. There is no choice in that
1: mm-hmm. in
2: light of uh, Bruin. But it's also mm-hmm. number two, it's the fact that we as gun owners or would-be gun owners, or I should really say licensees or would-be licensees, we don't fight these cases when we're denied the, uh, you know, the, the license, when we apply. We don't fight them when we have the license and that right is just summarily taken away. We don't fight them in court. Um, or if we do fight them, we make the huge mistake of representing ourselves. So I think really it's those two things. And I think that consequently, from my experience, you know, judges I've spoken to over the years, and I know this from law school, I don't think lay people sort of, um, you know, they're not privy to the extent to which judges need to be educated in in various areas of the law. Because it's an exceptionally difficult thing. The judge is sitting up there, he or she is in robes, and people make the assumption that they know, uh, you know, that judge must know all about the relevant, applicable law, uh, given that set of facts. And it's just not the case. It's not the mm. case at all.
1: And No, that's a great that's a great point. Um, and when we heard the oral arguments in the. It was the uh, assault weapons ban in Chicago that became very evident to me when you heard the questions that the judges were asking both sides of that it made it sound like they really don't know what the heck they're talking about as far as gun gun laws are concerned right. and, and that's exactly the way that whole court played out was it was a very it was a posturing political uh pandering type of thing and you know they got into the weeds about you know, do you think it's OK to have tactical nukes? Do you think it's OK to have RPGs? Do you think right. it, we went from an assault weapon, quote unquote, uh, and high capacity magazines and jump the shark to, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles? Right. Under right. You know, it's like, I,
2: right. I know all about the straw man argument, Toby. I get the straw man argument from the other side in this. When the other side is represented by typically it'll be Tom council, almost every single hearing it's the straw man argument. It's designed to portray my argument and the arguments of my colleagues as extremist, right? So they say, well, no, right is absolute. As if we are saying that we are here to advocate for the lawful possession of tactical nuclear weapons, right? right. Because right. that way it makes you look in, like an extremist. It makes your position look extreme. And it's, it, I always tell people, as soon as you hear the straw man argument, you know that that other side has no actual logical, viable, tenable arguments. The other one is they'll say, well, um, you know, no right is absolute. And yeah, you know, no one has the right to possess any type of gun that they want. And I remember saying to a judge, you know, here we are, we're we're seconds into this hearing judge and we're already at the straw man argument. Mm. Um, so you do get that all the time it's really quite something there is no other constitutional law or constitutional provision i should say that is defined by what it is not right Right. like i mean you don't go and argue a first amendment case and and people are already into this discourse this back and forth about what it is not usually i mean the question is like whether or not the conduct that's at issue is protected by the first amendment like yeah, this.
1: Well, the, you know, go down that road for a second, uh, you know, about the First Amendment and, you know, whether you go back to when people were trying to say that uh, pornography or strip clubs are a First Amendment protected activity and you get into the courtroom and the first thing they say is, well, no one, uh, no right is absolute judge. You can't yell fire in a theater. Right. You know, it's, it's like, right. You're right. I mean, no other right is defended that way, right? Absolutely. It, that's pretty funny um, that you pointed absolutely. That out. Absolutely.
2: So I I've um, you know, again, I thank you for this opportunity. I figured maybe one good thing to start with might be the um prosecutions for the unlicensed possession of a firearm. I think you mm. touched upon this um earlier in your prior show, maybe prior yeah. a few shows, Toby. Um yeah. I am dealing yeah. with that as well. I have a case where I filed a motion to dismiss, um, before the decision from that, uh, uh, in, in that Lowell district court case came out hmm. and, um, mine, unfortunately, just a few days back, I was, my motion was denied. So the motion was allowed in the Lowell district court. And I will tell you all of the material facts are the, exactly the same. In fact, my client also comes, came, came here from uh, New Hampshire, where he, where he was a lawful gun owner. And Mm -hmm. so he crossed the state line as judge Coffey said in his decision, which I think is a very logical, eminently logical, um, decision. Um, he pointed out, you know, you could be at the mall, the pheasant lane mall, right in Nashua. And I Mm -hmm. think that is correct. I think a portion of that mall is actually in Massachusetts and Tewksbury. Yep. Right. Next thing you know, you're a felon. So that's um, what we are dealing with um, there. I've gotten a lot of calls on that. I think, um, you know, I'm telling people don't don't go out and possess a gun without a license. You have to do it lawfully, of course. Um, but I think what people are sort of missing on that is you don't have to reach the point where the court would have to hold that licensing itself is unconstitutional. I mean, here you have the additional layer of it being an out-of-state prosecution, but it's also the idea of people being prosecuted and it's a mandatory minimum uh, 18 month sentence, right? If you possess a gun a license. So that's really the salient question. Is, Is there any historical antecedent for that? Was there at the time of the ratification of the second amendment? And then all the way through to 1868, the, the ratification of the 14th Amendment, and the answer really is a resounding no. Um, in fact, the, my research indicates there were two states that even had licensing, and um, both of those were done. It was a, it was a shameful, you know, racist. Um, they were racist laws that said that if you are an African American, you're a Black American, you must. Um, have a license and I don't think the Commonwealth would want to hang their hat on that. I, I should hope not.
1: well the the government has used those examples in the Rahimi case uh, before the before the uh, Supreme Court that you know the, they actually used those and they said well we don't agree with the sentiment of right. the gun control but we're just showing that there's legal precedent for gun control when it comes to, uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, our nation's text history and tradition.
2: Well, and they were not, they, those Absolutely. were not, those were not laws of general applicability, right? So they don't, they are not analogous to the laws that we have now in terms of prosecuting people, um, for unlicensed possession of a firearm. I mean, I've had discussions with lawyers from out of state on that. They, they cannot believe the extent to which that is the case. And, you know, I argued an issue dealing with, um, with this some years back and exactly what you said. One of the questions I got from a justice on the Massachusetts appeals court, <clears throat> excuse me, I had said something about, um, you know, the difficulty an FID versus an LTC and how does one actually really, uh, possess a gun? How, how does one even get a gun home? Um, if one has an FID, there is this sort of strange thing called, I guess a permit to purchase, et cetera. But in any event, it's um, really quite absurd. And the justice uh, said to me, well, that's easy. You can just order the gun online and have it delivered to your home. So I, I only wish I were kidding, which, of course, says, you know, better than anybody else. That is absolutely does not happen. Right.
1: Yeah, I I have going back to that case I was listening to in. Um, I can't remember. I think it was Illinois. It might have been rhode island though um when they were asking the both sides basically how does it work you know can i just order a gun through the mail and it comes to my house this is the judge asking the questions and both of them had to educate the judge and say oh no there's law that says you got to go through an ffl and but ironically that there was a time where when you could do that you could buy a gun out of the back of the sears and roebuck or you know in the sporting goods section of the Sears Roebuck catalog and have it shipped to your door, J.C. JCPenney. Um, and people weren't dying as a result. <laughs> it was just, you know, it was an accepted settled right that you didn't need to ask permission because it's a right. It's not a privilege. And we have this, this environment now, and especially in States like, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, you know, Maryland, Hawaii, California, etc., that have conflated it into a privilege instead of a right. And every aspect about our licensing scheme screams privilege because uh, when I first got my license to carry, you, you had to have three references. You had to sit down and Tell the chief why you wanted to have a license in order to exercise your right to keep and bear arms. And he could restrict it to places or travel routes of where you could and couldn't go with said firearm. Now, I understand a lot of that was made right with Bruin, but the sentiment hasn't really changed. We have... Temper tantrums happening in all the aforementioned places, and especially here in Massachusetts, with our legislature that is putting on a full-on temper tantrum with this HD forty-four twenty, saying this is what we're going to do because of a Bruin, a, a decision that came out in the New York State Rifle and Pistol versus Bruin. So this is how we're going to react to that. It's like a, a petulant child you know, on his hands and face down, you know, slamming his hands and feet on the floor because they don't get their way.
2: Right, which is strange because for decades it was never an issue, right? We have the licensing regime. You can make arguments both, you know, pro and and anti. But it wasn't until exact, I think it was almost exactly a year from when the Bruin decision came out that this, um, this piece of garbage legislation, and that's really what it is, because it really is nothing but what you say, which is, it's a giant F you to the US Supreme Court. And um, I just, um, I've met members of the US Supreme Court, and I know this sounds corny, there are times I'll watch them or listen to them really, because you can only listen to their oral arguments, but um, I teach law as well, and I have my students listen to their oral arguments, and it's very moving, it's very, you think to yourself, boy, that justice, I might disagree with a lot of there are uh, decisions, dissents, majority, etc., but theres I have respect for them. And um, I think that this is a giant show of disrespect because I am confident that the drafters of that legislation are fully cognizant, I hope they are, that this is manifestly unconstitutional. I mean, because it would criminalize leaving your home with the gun, which just brings us right back squarely. To what Bruin addressed. And um, they just simply don't seem to care or they know that it is. And they look at it as, well, we'll force it to be litigated piecemeal. And I think I think it's the latter.
1: So do you think that so your case got dismissed then this case came out and was dismissed? Is that something you can get another bite at the apple on, or do you have to appeal it up to the next?
2: Right, right. Well, mine, Toby, mine was not dismissed. My motion to dismiss was denied. So yes, I'm I'm actually in the process, as we speak, really, of I'm going to try to see if the Mass Supreme Court will take that. The decision out of the Lowell District Court, um, my understanding is the Commonwealth is going to appeal that. So what I'm really? hoping... Correct. But So what I'm hoping is that maybe... I can get the mass Supreme court to uh, consolidate both um, cases because they raise the exact same legal issues for sure. Cause
1: that is interesting news to me because I, I would have bet dollars to donuts that there's no chance that the Commonwealth of Massachusetts will appeal that, that decision. Oh no, they are, and-
2: they are appealing. I'm sorry. I'm going to cut you off, but they are appealing nope. it. Um, you know, basically Judge Coffee. I've been in front of Jeff, Judge Coffee in the past. I, he just has always struck me um, as a very thoughtful, very pensive judge. He's spoken, spoken up very highly by the folks up there, you know, the lawyers up in Middlesex County. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, he pointed out essentially that the Commonwealth had nothing. They pointed to no historical antecedent. And the incredible thing about that is, as we get talking in the coming um half hour about um you know the licensing appeals process if you're denied if you're suspended i mean that's the incredible thing it's now over a year after bruin and i will tell you toby in not one of my cases has the commonwealth the licensing authority ever ever once offered said here's the historical analog to suitability here's the historical analog to this process it was a state down south that had a a similar law. And here's why it was similar. Nothing. They've not even bothered to to offer that. In my case, the Commonwealth offered nothing, nothing whatsoever, even though that is what Bruin says must be done.
1: Right. Because they have relied on the tiers of scrutiny or, you know, interest balancing approach for decades. Right. Right.
2: Exactly. I was just arguing that very same point uh, this morning in the case that um, because in Massachusetts, the case law has always held that, well, if the chief denies you, it's your burden to appeal it, and then you have the burden of showing that he or she abused his discretion, whatever that means. I've handled into the hundreds of criminal and civil appeals, including in first and second degree murder cases, and I can tell you, I barely, I, I don't really know what abusive discretion means, and it's such a malleable, uh, you know, concept. But that's exactly what I was arguing is look, we still cling to this standard of review and the US Supreme Court in Bruin said that is not going to be used henceforth. It is not the proper standard. And here we are a year later, and we're still doing it.
1: Um, And and unfortunately, I'm afraid that it's going to get worse before it gets better. I predicted this right after Bruin on this show. I said, People were like, oh, wow, this is great. This is good news. And I said, yes, it is. It's very good news. Uh, and they're like, what do you think's going to happen? I said, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I think we're going to have people like Hochul in New York who threw a temper tantrum and and said, you know, we're not going to let some activist court, which, by the way, they're calling the Supreme Court an activist court. That is Unbelievable. So in other words, if they don't agree with you, the tyrant, then they're an activist court, which is just unbelievable. Um, they're a supreme court for a reason, <laughs> not because they're activists, but because they've gone through the biggest vetting process of any confirmation process in the land. Right.
2: Um, well, active by activists, they mean that the court. Um, is is saying, look, this is based on the original understanding of the Second Amendment at the time. And we live in a time in America when that's activism, right? I mean, that's, that's looked at as judicial activism. The media portrays it as such that this is somehow an extremist decision. I was interviewed by a journalist about Bruin after it came out, and I said, look, at its core, it's an extraordinarily simple and sort of modest principle that the case is standing for, which is that the Constitution, the Second Amendment says keep and bear arms. It doesn't say keep. Why would bear even be there if it wasn't for the fact that it's a separate act? It's a separate state of being, right? Right. Um, It's a very, very simple concept. um, But I I am just here to say that I'm litigating this every day uh, in court, making statutory and constitutional arguments. And um, I, I think that the it, it, it is truly eye opening. I've never seen anything like it. I think of when um, in my criminal practice, the U.S. Supreme Court came out with a decision saying, look, we have the right to cross examine witnesses, a defendant has the right to cross examine witnesses and to confront the witnesses against him or her. And um, and so and that's the Sixth Amendment. It's very simple and we can't be proving we can't be convicting people based on a piece of paper that says that what they possessed was a controlled substance, right? It's kind of very common sense, very straightforward. When that decision came down, I mean, district courts, superior courts, they the judges said, well, that's it, right? I mean, like it, hate it, whatever, that is the law. That is what the US Supreme Court is saying. Yet Bruin came down and all I am hearing day after day when I argue these cases is, well, but Mr. Smith, doesn't that really only apply to didn't Bruin simply say that you can't have a proper cause requirement? And, it, you know, it was actually in my case today. And I said to the judge, well, to reach that conclusion, I mean, you'd have to literally not have read the case because right. it says so much more. And there's all of this language in Bruin about one of the reasons why the court struck down the New York law. is the exact same thing we have here, which is a subjective decision-making, you know, based uh, by a licensing authority that is devoid of any objective criteria. And that's exactly what suitability in Massachusetts is.
1: And make that same argument for any other enumerated right. Like take the Fourth Amendment, for instance, The, you know, um, and apply that same logic that if the chief of the town that you live in feels that you are an unsuitable person then he doesn't need a warrant he can come in your house he can rummage through your stuff he can search you upside and down for suspicion of illegal activity because you are an unsuitable person right according to the chief right so (laughs) you know that's i think as soon as you make like what i love about bruin is is Clarence Thomas basically just comparing it to other rights and saying for so long this has had those tiers of scrutiny, that two-step approach, that interest-balancing approach by legislatures throughout the country, and they reaffirmed that Heller was good case law, but after Heller they didn't give the courts the paint-by-number checkbox, you know, landing card, if you will, on right. how to rule on Second Amendment cases. So it was still the wild, wild west, right? Or You know another 15 years until the Bruin mandate came out in which they did tell the lower courts how to rule and even to this day like you said you just heard it this morning from a judge getting it wrong and it's like my gosh right so they're becoming willfully ignorant about it but I like to just compare it to any other enumerated right and say okay So what you're telling me, and as far as guns are concerned, we can apply that same standard to the first amendment, to the second amendment, to the fourth amendment, to the fifth amendment, to the 14th amendment. We can now all of a sudden give all that power to one individual in your town. And there's no due process. There's no more, uh, you know, challenge whatsoever to his authority. We just, we just got to go by what the, what the guy says. And if, if, he doesn't if we don't like what he says, right. it's our job to defend that and it's right. to prove otherwise.
2: Right. It's our job. Not it's our job to prove he abused his discretion. Now, understand that is the most onerous standard of review that there is. Right. I mean, I mean, to show that the decision maker abused his discretion. It's actually an impossibility because abusive discretion in other areas of the law is where there's some sort of list of criteria, right? It says the judge shall consider A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? Say a bail decision, right? Mm -hmm. And then abuse of discretion would be, well, the judge failed to consider B, D, E, F, et cetera, et cetera. You don't even have that here because there are no criteria as to what constitutes someone being an unsuitable person. It's really quite incredible. The mass Supreme Court years ago, long before Bruin, in a case called Simpkin, the mass Supreme Court held that this is said that this is very problematic. This whole suitability thing, this is very problematic because it is devoid of any objective criteria whatsoever. And, um, you know, it's it's quite an incredible thing to argue all of this, Toby. And then on the other side, you get, yeah, but nobody has the right to possess a bazooka. <laughs> right? And, and, you know, you get the sense that And they're good folks. I'm not here to malign them. But you get the sense that they've just had it so easy for so long that they don't even feel that compelled to sort of come up with any cohesive, coherent, logical, tenable legal argument as to why this particular action that the licensing authority took was was legal or was constitutional.
1: Amen to that. All right. We're talking with attorney William Smith here on Rapid Fire. We're gonna go to a quick break and then we're gonna continue this fascinating discussion. We've got a lot to talk about and we'll also take your questions if you wanna jump into the chat or give us a call. I'm Toby Leary, this is Rapid Fire. We will be right back. Don't go away. Carrying a firearm for personal protection has never been more popular than it is today. The USCCA can help fortify your home, sharpen your awareness and develop your defensive plan Go to uscca.co forward slash rapid fire to sign up your family safety and security is your responsibility go to uscca.co forward slash rapid fire to sign up for a uscca membership and get special training legal advice and legal protection you and your family need vortex offers the very best optics specifically made for shooters with rugged construction designed for extreme environments Vortex Optics build quality ensures accurate, reliable, and repeatable performance every time you squeeze the trigger. Add fully multi-coated lenses and nitrogen purging, and you have a quality optic with an extremely reasonable price tag. That is the Vortex Difference. Come into Cape Gunworks to see the full line of Vortex Optics today. Welcome back to Rapid Fire, your weekly show all things guns, freedom, Second Amendment, and self-defense. We're having a fascinating discussion with William Smith. He's an attorney out of Princeton, Massachusetts. So you wanna make sure you write down his name. If you have any uh, issues that come up as far as guns or any issue uh, around criminal law, he'd be a good guy to call and uh, get you pointed in the right direction. All right, so before the break, we're talking about this whole uh, interest balancing approach. Um, to the law and how the state of Massachusetts, for one, has never even tried to to get it right as far as the text history and tradition of our country or uh, other states and whatnot. And, and uh, do you think all that is, do you think the days are numbered as far as the courts having that luxury of that two-step approach um, as far as ruling on 2A uh, cases, or do you think they're going to continue to get away with it. Or what do you, what is your prediction as far as um, how it's going to go down in the next couple of years or year or so here in Massachusetts? Is I made the prediction it's going to get worse before it gets better. I, I still think so. But what do you think? And also, do you think the days of um, arguing 2A cases separately and differently than any other enumerated right, do you think those days are numbered or do you think they're going to continue to get away with that?
2: Well, I should put you on my staff because I find myself every day that I'm in court saying the days of this are numbered, Your Honor. And, and I think they are. I mean, I think they are. I said uh, recently, I think we're in Bob Dylan times, right? I think it was 1965 when Bob Dylan said the times are a, are a- changing. And I think that's what's happening. But I think here in Mass, it's a different thing. It's a it's going to be slower because the number of lawyers who like me do this Tobia as a sort of substantive part of their practice, it's very finite as you probably know. Um, So it's not really being spread widespread. I come across cases where I see lawyers who don't do this type of work, I don't think, or they don't do much of it. And they're filing one page petitions in these cases that are completely devoid of a solitary constitutional argument, okay? I only wish I were kidding. So I think it's going to take time to sort of get to the judges, um, and sort of explain all these things. It's just not something that they deal with. You know, you have to realize 90 plus percent of what they're doing is, um, criminal cases, right? They're presiding over arraignments, pretrial conferences, et cetera, uh, bench trials, motion, motions to suppress in criminal cases. It's very, this is a very different thing. Um, but that is exactly the sort of tenor that I have been taking in my petitions. And when I argue these in court, um, you know, so I I think I'm a little more optimistic than you are. Um, but I think a lot of this depends on how it goes with the U.S. Supreme Court. I think in the next few years, um, if there is a change in the composition of the court and it goes the other way, That's when I will start to get to be very concerned. So the next election obviously is extraordinarily important, you know, relative to the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we'll see in that regard Um, the members of the court who seem to recognize this right, understand what's at stake. I mean, it's probably 6-3 now and um even if it went to five four that still is a majority and i hope i hope that is the case but that's no reason to be complacent for sure and i think we're going to be living in days where sort of it's how you argue bruin right bruin is one of those cases that we lawyers would say it's a great case too because there's so much room there to argue from which to argue it's like a springboard right yeah you got
1: time you want to take a quick call
2: Absolutely.
1: All right, let's do it. Hello, you're on rapid fire with attorney Smith and Toby Leary. Go ahead. Oh, hold on one sec. I got to fix the audio. Forget I have to press a certain button. Hello.
0: Hey, there you go. You're on. Hello. Yes. <laughs> hey, Toby, Don and Stoughton here.
1: Hey, Don, how you uh doing?
0: Quick question for, all right, sir. Quick question for attorney Smith. Attorney, back in 1775, the Patriots at Lexington and Concord established that you could keep and bear arms without a license. And then in 1906, the general court created the suitable person law. Now, I don't understand how a right all of a sudden could be uh, subject to a law when in fact there's nothing in the Constitution that allows the general court to act upon the possession of firearms by lawful citizens. So, how does it go from a, an absolute right in 1775 to a licensed privilege in 1906? I just don't make the connection, sir. Sure, I, I understand.
2: I understand what you're what you're getting at. Um, I would actually say, well, actually, the problem was that in 1775 that it was looked at as a privilege, I suppose. I mean, the very essence of what the British did in going up to Concord prior to that, they actually uh, came out here uh, to Worcester um, was, in fact, because they looked at it as it was within their purview to, purview to take away um, the, the the right of the colonists, at least in, in an organized fashion that they were keeping um, and bearing arms. However, I mean, what we have to go by is the ratification of the Second Amendment. Um, under Bruin which is 1791. Mm-hmm. So basically Bruin says that we're to look to that period to 1791 at the time of the ratification and whether there was a similar law that existed and I think though that your the tenor of your question I think is is it's a very good one because I think once you apply that statute I think the only people who were really truly disarmed um, were people who were dangerous felons And um, I would suggest everybody read uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett's dissent in um, Cantor versus Barr, which was from the Seventh Circuit, 2019, where she talked about this. And she said people were not disarmed on the basis of virtue. Um, And that is what so many of these so-called suitability procedures um, are, are based on. It's just, well, we, I don't think you're a virtuous person. I think you were untruthful on the application. Or I think that the, I have concerns about you with respect to mental health, right? Whatever that means. I, I was going to give a couple of examples, if I could, of some of the truly shocking cases that I've had. One.
1: Well, hold on one I, sec. I Before you go there, I definitely have, um, that's my next question for you, Attorney okay. Smith one thing i want to follow up with on Don's question is um more specific if i can just you know sharpen the point of what he was asking um is licensing in general i know both in heller and in bruin they kind of left the door open i don't think thomas did in his majority opinion but i think uh kavanaugh did in his concurrence saying yeah well we're not really saying you can you can't but you can license you know they didn't really address that whole issue head on even though it was a licensing case right right but how in the text history and tradition is what i think don is saying how in the text history and tradition even at 1791 can you advocate for a licensing scheme
2: for a right. So I hear you and I'm not here to advocate for that. I know we touched upon it earlier. And like I said, my research and I got this from the premier treatise on the Second Amendment and firearms law. Um, and those the authors and editors of that book did a, have done a superb um, amount of historical research on this. And they found there were only two states that had licensing at the time of the ratification of the second amendment to the 14th amendment. So in the 1800s, and again, both of them were um, shameless, racist laws that were designed to keep uh, firearms out of the hands of black Americans. So um, I'm right there with you. I'm not disputing that at all. Um, I, I don't know if that sort of, you know, but I but what they did say in the court, here, here's the thing though. And some lower courts have pointed this out is that you have to read those decisions carefully as, as we always do as lawyers and the language about that about licensing it says presumptively it says presumptively constitutional the the idea of having licensing that doesn't mean it's conclusive any presumption under the law the way a presumption works is it's in it's an idea it's a premise right that's there and you can come up with arguments and historical evidence to show well that that's that yeah, presumption yeah. is not valid
0: right
1: and uh, thanks for the call well, go ahead you have something
0: just a uh, quick follow-up toby yeah well murdoch says that you can't license a right but attorney smith in Martel, the u.s supreme court 222 u.s 225 stated that all laws must be based upon concrete conditions of an evil that require the law where the hell does the 1906 law come from? And where's the data that supported yeah. it? Now, leave you there, guys. Thank you.
2: Thank you, thank you sir. Thank you, sir. No. I don't know the context of that case. It doesn't even ring a bell. I'm thinking it's probably a case that dealt with some type of rational basis review of law, which we sort of touched upon earlier. I mean, I don't know. But again, I think under the Bruin framework, uh, I mean, I'm right there with you. I think it's also we should focus on it's not, not just the idea of having a license um a license licensing for firearms as i explained to people who are shocked when they learn that we are now in the minority and it, i i believe it's 27 states now yes, licensing exactly. is not at all required and i tell people but there's actually really no difference because when you go to purchase a gun you still have to go through the background check right and if you're disqualified under federal law you're not going to get a gun and all of the states have laws that say that if you have certain types of convictions, if you have been committed for mental health reasons, et cetera, et cetera, you can't possess a gun. So the licensing part of it, um, I have always pointed that out whenever possible in court um, is really sort of, it's almost like a distinction without a difference to begin with. It's not really accomplishing anything on the part of the state that can't be accomplished through those other means. I mean, it's just, And I I understand what people are saying. I think you also have to more narrowly focus as well on the idea that, well, even if we have licensing laws, why is it that we have these draconian um, punishments of 18 months in the Hassa correction, mandatory minimum? I mean, I had a client who did 18 months. He had an FID card, but he didn't have the LTC that was required for that rifle. I did his appeal, a colleague of mine did the... um, you know, do it in the trial court. But to this day, he had no prior criminal record. To this day, yeah. I look at that case and I think, wait a minute, I've represented defended people with 15, 20 page records who commit things that are far worse than that, who, who don't even get a slap on the wrist. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's
1: It's a victimless crime. And that's exactly what right. the, law, the gun control laws do, is they point a loaded gun, literally and figuratively, at the people who are mo- most more apt to follow the law right. than the law enforcement officials that will be there to arrest them. Right. Uh, it's it's an irony of ironies, in my opinion. Um, but let's go back to what you were saying. You wanted to say uh, some of the more shocking cases that you've you've sure. handled as an attorney here in the Bay State.
2: Sure. So I made a little a little list here. I really shouldn't laugh because it is truly these are truly shocking. Um, one was my client had been invited to a barbecue on a Friday afternoon after work. So he goes to the barbecue when he left, his guns were locked up at home. Nobody disputes that. Everybody agrees with that. He had no gun on him, no gun near him. He gets to the barbecue. Nobody has a gun, but he had an LTC, lawfully law abiding person. And, um, the police, uh, he he ends up getting intoxicated and he worked in the medical field. He was starting to have heart palpitations. And so, and he knew he had a problem with his heart, even though he's quite a young guy. So he called 911, the police come, they secure the scene as they they always do. The EMTs come, um, he goes to the hospital, just sort of waits it out the next morning. They visit him, they say, you know, he's doing fine. And then he is told his LTC is going to be taken away. So, you know, that was quite something. And as I said to the superior court judge, boy, by that standard, you exercise this right, you have no right to ever be intoxicated. You have to live this absolutely, completely virtuous existence where you're never intoxicated. I guess it would also mean you never have a bad day, you never are under stress, you never get angry, you know, et cetera, et cetera. By now,
1: that was he, just to clarify, was he carrying a gun when he was intoxicated?
2: Oh, no no gun whatsoever, no gun on him, no gun near him, no gun in his possession, not even in his constructive possession, other than a mile or so back at his home in a safe, locked up in a, court that's
1: unbelievable. A that is I, had,
2: I mean, luckily in that case, eventually um, I got a decision from a superior court judge in his favor, what he had to go through. He represented himself at the district court level. So we had to go through all of that. And of course, then to retain a lawyer, I mean, it's not cheap for sure, sure, which is why I'll just jump in on that point. And one thing I did want to get across, Toby, if I could, I yeah. tell people, don't even go for an LTC um, unless you've got a legal fund set aside. I really mean that. People think that, oh, well, my, gun isn't, my guns aren't going to be taken away. My LTC won't be taken away. I'm a law-abiding person. It has to be a reason. It has to be that I violate a criminal law. And And if you think that you boy, are you mistaken? Um, I had another case where, um, and I'm not kidding about this. There were two reasons given in the notice of suspension of my client's LTC. Number one, the licensing authority felt that he had been, my client had been under a lot of stress because he was going through a divorce at the time. And number two, he gave the middle finger to his neighbor. And that upon those that basis, they suspended his LTC and wow. what was the result? The judge upheld that. I mean, I, really? I truly do only wish I were kidding. Another one. Um, my client uh, was involved in an incident in Cambridge. He, um, very, very, uh, uh, really a great guy. Uh, he was a manager, I think part owner of a restaurant out there. Very, you know, very well known in the community. Um, And he was um, attacked by people who lived um, or frequented the area near his restaurant. He gets attacked. He gets hit in the back of the head by them. And then another one of them came over and smashed an electric guitar over my client's head, opening up his head, causing him to need. I can't remember how many stitches, but I had the photographs of it. So my client was an LTC holder. He had a handgun on him. It was not loaded. He drew his handgun. He did not even point his handgun. And this is all coming from independent witnesses. He did not even point it, even at that point, at the people who were attacking him, threatening his life. Easily could have taken his life uh, through, through acts like that. And he simply pointed it down at the pavement, uh, yelled at them to leave. He did. He did follow them at one point. But again, his gun was unloaded. Um, And as a result of that, he was not only was his LTC taken away, he was he was charged. He was prosecuted with assault with a dangerous weapon. I mean, again, I only wish I were kidding. Mm. The, um, the, The folks who did this to him were also charged. And then ultimately, all of the charges were dismissed, both on him and on the people who the criminals who attacked him. Um, had he in, and as I made clear, had he had, had his gun been loaded, um, in my opinion, and I know the law of self-defense quite well, um, he would have been 100% justified in using lethal force against him without a doubt. And again, this is coming from independent witnesses. This is not just coming from him. Uh, we ultimately, um, um, the, the, the licensing authority through their counsel who who was great to work with, you know, contacted me, he contacted me and said, look, they're they're going to give him his license back. But the irony in that, by um, that was before the judge came out with her decision. And then after we had um reached an agreement where they reinstated his license, the judge came out with the decision upholding what the licensing authority had done in taking his license. Hmm. Um I I could go on. I, well, I you
1: know, to what extent you want me to No, uh, the, uh, it brings up a interesting s- situation that arose. I might've even told you about it when you came down in the shop one day, but we had a, cus- a customer here at the shop and I've talked about this on the air before, um, that would come in once a month, elderly, uh, father and a disabled, um, guy who were collectors and, you know, Hobbyist type shooters. And uh the disabled son was in his 40s and he was on oxygen. He had one of the most rare diseases in the world, believe it or not. Um, they told me what it was, and I think there was less than 20 people worldwide that have the disease, and um so they were with uh the gentleman's nephew and grandson accordingly, and uh they were out to get a pizza and the, the father, the the grandfather, uh, was driving. The young kid was in the passenger seat and the son was in the back seat, which was the kid's nephew, not father. And I know this gets a little confusing, but they're all related. He's turning in and the guy in oncoming traffic mashes the gas pedal and starts bearing down on him. And it causes the older gentleman to kind of panic a little bit. And as he pulls in, the guy sitting in the back, the uncle or the son, whichever way you want to look at it, looks at the guy and goes, mulfs the words like, dude, what are you doing? You almost gave my father a heart attack here. They pull in and they sit at the thing and they knew they just ordered pizza. So They got a few minutes before the pizza will be ready. And they're just sitting in the car and all of a sudden this car comes in the parking lot on two wheels, pulls up right next to him and the guy gets out. He had gone down the road, turned around and came back. Because the guy mulled, you know, told him what he thought of him through the through the window. And the guy got out, and uh, so the older gentleman who's in his 80s thinks you settle things man to man, face to face. So he starts to get out of the car. And the, the guy starts to assault him and by slamming the car door on him, the older gentleman. He's slamming him between the car and the car door, and he's standing up and he's repeatedly doing it. So the older gentleman manages to get a couple. Feeble attempts at a punch in. And then meanwhile, the the 40 something year old son gets out of the car and his oxygen tank falls off and starts rolling around and he gets out. And the two of them are wrestling with this guy who's 19 years old, convicted felon. And they manage to get him away and he trips and falls down and gets embarrassed. So he stands up and says, that's it. You're dead meat. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to get my Glock out of the car and you're dead. He threatens their life he's trying to get into the glove compartment and uh they're like you know what stop and finally the younger gentleman pulls out his raspberry colored ruger sr 22 and says listen let's wait for the police to come this is over like stop trying to go in your glove box to kill me and so the guy starts filming this with his cell phone and he's still threatening them and uh So he can see the gun down by his side, like the same situation as yours. He never points it at him, never threatens him, just says, police are on their way. Let's let them get here and sort this mess out. You know, uh, this is over. This is over right now. And so someone comes out, gets in a car, uh, says, hey, let's go. Uh, Who knew this guy, this 19-year-old kid, and says, let's go. They jump in the car and drive away. He reholsters his gun, and they're kind of like, what the heck is going on? And a manager comes out of a shop and said, I saw the whole thing. You guys are fine. Don't think you did anything wrong. This is ridiculous. I've called the police and you guys didn't do anything wrong. That was all him. So there's an eyewitness. Please show up, hook him up, put him in the cruiser. As he's sitting in the cruiser, the kid comes back and he's going, that's the guy. That's the guy. And police are like, that's the guy what? That's the guy that attacked us the cops go lean in and start talking back and forth and then, all right, I'll see you later. And the kid drives away and they just proceed to take him down to the department, hook him up. And you know, I get it. It was a busy July 4th weekend. And uh, so the guys come into my shop, like crying, is there anything you can do? We have no money. There's like, I had 12 grand set aside to pay the property taxes this year for my father. And uh, that's all the money we got. And so uh, long and short of it, he has to hire a lawyer, it ends up costing him over twenty thousand uh, dollars in legal defense. And they, when they go for their arraignment, the prosecutor set bail at wanted bail set at five thousand dollars for him. Turns out the kid that attacked him is in court the same day for an unrelated matter. Two days prior, put a knife to a kid's throat and threatened his life with a knife. And they release him on his own personal recognizance. But they want $5,000 of the guy who got arrested. And the judge was like, why is this guy even in my courtroom right now? And uh, and he's in court with his oxygen. And she's like, uh, why do you have oxygen on? And like, that's nothing in the court report, nothing in the arrest report saying you are on oxygen. Right. Right. And they're like, he's like, I don't know. Ask them. They didn't even ask me one question. Not that it would have been wise to talk to the police at that point, but they still didn't even ask them anything. They just hook them up, brought him downtown. And I called the chief of police in this town and said, Hey do, guys, this is kind of like an open shut self-defense case. And he goes, Oh, it's up for the judge to worry about. Right. <laughs> so $15, $20,000 later, the judge did figure it out and let the guy go but still, it's like, oh, and they suspended his license in the meantime and seized right. all his guns and, you know, all that stuff. It, it cost them a, a tremendous amount of money. So all that being said, you, you obviously just told a bunch of stories of similar stuff. Gun ownership is you're in hostile waters in Massachusetts. Uh, on, you know, it's there's no other way around it. Right. Um, so for that matter. How can people protect themselves and you talked about a fund or whatever uh, a legal defense fund but um how can people protect themselves and uh, i want to give you plenty of time to tell people how they can find you should they need your services and uh you know you can tell the phone number or, or website or facebook or whatever else uh if if they do find themselves needing uh, a lawyer to represent them so um why don't you finish us up with that uh attorney Smith. And it, it, by the way, it's been a great discussion and I appreciate everything you do for the second amendment in this state. As I know, like you said, there's not a lot of two A attorneys um, that are, you know, like sharks in the water in this, in this state, you know what I mean? Uh, you're, you're certainly uh, doing, doing the Lord's work here in this state that is hostile to gun ownership, but um, how can people find you and how can they defend themselves in, in a way that you know, is there something they can do to defend themselves against this?
2: Sure. What I would suggest, Toby, in addition to the legal fund, and I really do mean that, I, I suggest I tell people you should have maybe three, four, five thousand five thousand dollars put away if uh, before you apply. And then once you have an LTC to defend your LTC at a minimum, frankly. Um, but what I would suggest, really, that's an interesting question and it just popped into my head. I would pick up the phone find firearms lawyers i'm always happy willing i talk to people sometimes at 11 30 at night midnight you know they could just call me up and um and i would just sort of run these types of things by them you know here's what you can do from my experience you know ask them i i might ask them what town is it that you'll be applying in right because we who do this work we're on the front lines right I know for a fact that there are certain towns that I get a higher number of calls about, right? Whether it's in Central Mass, whether it's closer to Boston. When you hear certain towns over and over from people, from disparate sources saying, gee, you know, I applied, I'm a law-abiding person, I have no record, and they're denying me because, and you hear these sort of horror stories, um, it starts to register as a lawyer doing this work that something's going on there right? Hmm. Someone there has got uh, something happening where they're really out to sort of um, um, go after this right. So, you know, people can get information that way. Um, I wish the various sportsmen's clubs were more sort of linked, right? Um, You know, listservs or however, you know, social media, maybe sort of um, closed ended sort of like groups on Facebook, whatever the case may be, just to sort of give the heads up and get sort of intelligence as to what is going on out there. Um, Because again, from my experience, I can't stress it enough. Anybody who thinks that this whole idea of suitability is based solely on, well, you had a criminal charge in the past or something like that, it isn't, it's not. I mean, I once had a judge say to me, I made one of the arguments I made is, you know he's being denied. My client's being denied this right, in part because he had a years-old charge. Mind you, not even a conviction, but a charge of operating a motor vehicle on a suspended license. Which, which, as I said to him, judge, there's there's no nexus between that and his, you know, the public safety danger were he were he to be licensed to possess a firearm. Judge looked at me and said, "Well, it tells me that he he can't abide by the law. He he can't." get himself to abide by the law. And it's like, again, it goes back to this idea that if you're a gun owner, you're, you somehow have to be 100% virtuous and we have to attack that promise. Yeah, We really do because you you know, that. imagine if you voted and you know, the if you went to vote and they said, I'm sorry, we we're taking, you know, you're not going to be able to vote because you were charged in the past with operating a motor vehicle on a suspended license. It'd be on the, it would be on six o'clock news across the entire country.
1: Yeah, I, uh, and I, I know we got to wrap this up, but on the other hand, uh, Mark Smith had a good tweet today, how uh, the Illinois DMV is going to automatically register people to vote. Um, and he said, well, let's take it one step further. And if you're going to register your car or get your driver's license and you're automatically registered to vote, then you should also automatically get your license to carry, right? because the person is obviously trustworthy enough to own an automobile right. and to vote in our elections. So therefore, right. automatically Thanks. issue them their their right. license to right. carry.
2: And by the way, medical malpractice, it's between 280,000 and 400,000 deaths a year in
1: America. Wow, wow. I was a little off. I oh, gotta okay. add the zero.
2: <laughs>
1: right, right. <laughs> uh, I, I said it was, uh, no, I did say that. I said 250,000 right, right. a year. That's what some,
2: some studies think it could be north of 400,000. So thank if people want to, um, reach me, just Google law office of William Smith, Princeton, it will show it up.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Attorney Tony. Smith for coming on. We'll do this again for sure. If you're up to, to it, I've got a lot to. more to talk about. I know, uh, we just scratched the surface and, uh, it's gonna be an interesting couple years ahead and uh, I, I hope that if people need you' uh, they'll, they'll find you and you'll you'll be able to help them out. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you. All right everybody that is it another rapid fire in the back. Um, so happy you guys joined us. Uh, sorry we couldn't get to everyone's questions. Uh, but we will have attorney Smith on the line again. And uh, yeah, so God bless. Make make sure you're an advocate for responsible gun ownership in your communities and put on a, you know, responsible face of gun ownership. Bring someone new to the range, take them shooting. And uh, God bless. We will see you next week. Thanks so much for being on the show.